You're listening to the Hub City Church Podcast. To learn more about Hub City Church, including our gathering times, you can check out our website at albanyhubcity.com. Um, hey guys, it's so good to be up here. Um, like Randall said, we're kind of doing a little four-part series kind of leading up to Easter. And I'm going to warn you, because I just can't help it, we are going to get nerdy. You guys excited about that? All right. I'm not necessarily a smart person, but I'm a huge nerd. So I really uh, love diving into the Word. I love diving into commentaries and all this nerdy stuff that most people don't have time to. Are you, do you need to know everything we're going to learn today to know and fall in love with Jesus? No. Will it help you? I hope so. <laughs> but it's your fault for being here, okay? So... Um, <laughs> Yeah, we're going to get into some stuff. So like Randall said, leading up to Easter, we're kind of doing this series called Rhythms of Grace. Normally, they're called spiritual practices or spiritual disciplines. Uh, the reason we title them reason, or Rhythms of Grace is because these practices are not to be burdensome. Okay, a lot of times you hear like, oh, this stuff I have to add to my life. And we believe it's not stuff you need to add to your life. It's things that God has gifted to us for free of ways that he wants to give us freedom from the burdensomes of life, of making more bricks with less straw, the kind of Pharaoh Egypt lifestyle that we've been talking about a lot in our last series and saying, hey, I want to give these gifts to you freely so that I can actually shape you. It's more about what I can do in you and less what you can do for me. Um, and as he's, you know, says to his people, be holy as I am holy, he doesn't just leave it there and walk away. He wants to actually be with his people and help his people. So there's many, many books that we could read about this kind of stuff, but one of the, the top ones, one of the best ones, was by this guy Richard Foster, a great writer. He wrote this book, Celebration of Disciplines, and he kind of frames it up in, in terms of farming. Okay, so I just want to frame up with these, when we talk about rhythms of grace or this kind of spiritual disciplines idea, he has this to say. He says, a farmer is helpless to grow grain. All he can do is to provide the right conditions for the growing of the grain. He cultivates the ground, he plants the seed, he waters the plants, and then the natural forces of the earth take over and up comes the grain. This is the way it is with the spiritual disciplines. They are a way of sowing to the spirit. The disciplines are God's way of getting us into the ground. They put us where he can work within us and transform us. By themselves, the spiritual disciplines can do nothing. They can only get us to the place where something can be done. They are God's means of grace. Highly recommend the book. Um, there's many others as well. But I should mention that also in the church world, when we talk about means of grace or God's grace, this can trigger some particular denominational viewpoints. For example, there's some that believe that we're only left with two main means of grace after the scriptures, after Jesus' death and resurrection, and that is just baptism and communion. And that's beautiful. And I think those are absolutely in there. But at Hub City, just so we're clear, we believe that the term is less specific to two main practices and, and how we, those are the only ways we can grow in our relationship with God. We would define it not just, again, growing of doing these practices, but rather what these practices are doing in us, right? So it's this invitation that God gives us to say, I want to shape you through a bunch of different ways. His scripture, through prayer, through community, through worship, we'll get into a lot of these ones. Of course, baptism, of course, um, communion. So let's get into it. Community, okay? Merriam-Webster Dictionary defines it, a group of people living in the same place or having a particular characteristic in common. 
okay? That's what community means in our English language. Typically, when people say my community, it means people like you that are into what you are into. Some variations, some changes, but most of the time, my community is people like you that are into what you're into. You hear these phrases, right? I'm part of the faith community. I'm part of the science community. I'm part of the margin community, the Boys and Girls Club community. I'm, for example, a proud member of the dad bod community, right? So I'm in that, one of the leaders. But this also means we are not a part of some communities, right? We don't associate with communities that we don't want to be associated with. And the issue with communities is that once something happens, right, like a trouble or a scandal or something, Frankly, we just don't like it anymore. And that's the opportunity to then want to leave that community. I, I love the music, um, but I just watched, and this isn't a commentary on this, but I just watched a trailer for a new documentary coming out that's called Hillsong Exposed. Okay, and it's talking about the Hillsong movement. There's so much good that happened out of that, but like lately they've had some scandals. Lately there's been some stuff, right? The trailer alone just makes it seem like if you are a fan of Hillsong at all, like you, you should not even believe in Jesus. Like it is like gnarly stuff in there, right? And all of a sudden it just makes this grossness and the whole thing, the whole community of it is all of a sudden something to be canceled, right? And this is where we kind of get these phrases of cancel culture. You guys have heard that, I'm sure. Because of this injustice, I am no longer a part of this whole community. My name will not be dirtied by this corruption and anything associated with it. All this has caused me to wonder about the particular word community, right? Is it inherently something that you can just pop in and out of? What makes it different than a club or a restaurant that you no longer like the management of or a social gathering that doesn't mean anything beyond the actual gathering? Is community supposed to be more than just people like me who are into what I'm into? Biblically, let's get into it. This might surprise you, but community is not a Bible word. Does that surprise you? It is actually not in your Bible. You can go right now and look up community verses, and they'll give you many verses about community, but the word community is not in our Bible, in most translations. There might be a translation, so don't check me on that. But we talk about community all the time, though, right? Let's worship as a community. Let's do life as a community. I'm part of the Christian community, okay? And we know what we mean, right? It's people around us that we all have something in common together. But it's rather nuanced because it's not just a body of people, right? If you go to a concert, you don't look around all the 300 sweaty people that you're dancing with or whatever and say, this is my community, right? You just say, this is a mob. I need to get out, depending on the genre of music, right? But here's what is in the scriptures. Hey, these words are everywhere. I'm going to teach you some Greek. We're getting nerdy, okay? Now, the first one is koinonia, okay? Koinonia it means fellowship. We see this all over the scriptures, have fellowship with one another, right? It's kind of this idea of mutual encouragement with one another. Another word we see is kyriake, kyriake, which means of the Lord or dedicated to the Lord. Now, interestingly, this word is where we get our English word church, okay? This comes from kyriake, right? Of the Lord or dedicated to the Lord, so we have this of the Lord, this kind of vertical aspect of community, and we have this koinonia, this kind of horizontal aspect of community, right? This dedicated to the Lord and this fellowship with one another. And I was trying to think, how could I come up with a symbol that would just help us remember the vertical and the horizontal? And then, oh man, look at that. Wow. It's like it was meant to be. 
right? Loving God and loving others, right? Of course, this gets confusing. Let me teach you a third word. For the gathering of assembled people under one mind is called an ecclesia. You've probably heard this before, right? This word is most translated in our New Testament as church. But what's interesting is ecclesia was used in the Greek language, the ancient Greek language, as just any gathering of people that are coming together under a single mind or for a single purpose. Okay? So you, it's not particularly faith-based. This could be deciding state legislature. This could be what to do at a school assembly, right? That's an ecclesia. So biblically, in, when we're talking church community, we're talking ecclesia. This is a gathering out of the people under one mind, literally called called out ones, called out from homes and where they are into one area. Koinonia, fellowshipping with one another as the kyriake, as the church, as the dedicated to the Lord. Okay? Nerdy, I know. Okay. But in our grounding passage today, Paul is writing to the church in Ephesus. He's writing to specifically Gentiles, right, who have come to this faith, and now they're wondering, they're from the outside, and they're thinking, how do we fit into this community of faith? How do we enter into? We don't have no idea how to participate now in this community of Jesus followers. So Paul takes the first part of Ephesians 2 to tell them of a beautiful new identity they have with Christ. Go read it on your own. It's, Ephesians 2 is incredible, right? Verse 19, so then, this is how he concludes, so then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. This is the mighty goal of God's community here on earth. Strangers becoming family members. Just right there. It's that simple. Beautiful, right? Strangers, people on the outside don't know how to enter and don't have no idea. They love Jesus. They have no idea what to do. Still strangers becoming like family. Community, the first thing, should look like family. Now let me ask some questions. That sounds beautiful. In your family, are there arguments or disagreements? right? In your family, are there some family members you like a little bit less than others, right? Are you that family member, right? Do families have fun together? Do families grow together? Do families go through joy and grief together? Do you see where I'm going with this, right? It's beautiful, but it also enters into another kind of emotional part. Just think about it. What does your family look like? Just think. Now, if the first word out of your mouth is fully dysfunctional. I'm sorry, that's not great. That's not ideal. Um, if that's your answer, I do pray that the family of God's household as we're reading is redeeming that for you. Um, but hopefully everyone at some level would have some sort of hope that their family is making a difference in the world, right? That as individuals or your parents, your marriage, your kids, how, whatever your family looks like, are all unique and bring something unique to the table of life. Now, as we're talking about family and community and church and thinking about our kind of day and age, it would make sense, though, that as our society becomes more focused on convenience and more aimed at easy access, that then our organized church families would become that, too. I have nothing against live streaming. Obviously, we're doing it. Hello, if you're on here. And or online church, those are tools that are preaching the gospel, that are reaching people. And if people come to a relationship with Jesus, amazing, right? But the argument that I love Jesus, I just hate the church, 
right? First of all, I get it. Church hurt is real and it's devastating because it's full of people, right? It's full of people, not, not perfect people that are here and trying to show their best. Front. It's sinners who recognize that we're sinners, realizing we need to be saved. That's what makes up a church. Does that sound messy? Absolutely, right? But church hurt is absolutely real and there's abuse. It's for sure real, right? Family like that is not always easy. There's some real downsides on how easily we've made it to access communities by convenience or preference, right? According to Paul, as we're using this, you're staying strangers, right? Staying on the outside. I understand there's many reasons, but staying on the outside. It'd be like only participating in your family from now on through Zoom. That's it, right? There's just some sort of divide that would happen. Or what it often is, is a pre-recording of your family having dinner that you watch later, right? Is that part of being a family, right? Which brings up also membership, being a member. Now at Hub City, like we don't really do membership other than like we just want to know you <laughs> and we like try to be in relationship and know, but like we don't have a directory and stuff like that, right? Membership is hard to do. It's hard, I think, in our psyches to do today, right? It's Today, if you don't like a certain part of town or restaurant or you don't like the preaching or music at a certain church, which after the series might be here, right, you don't have to go back. You can find a different one. There's many, right? We have been convinced that community is something to subscribe to until there's something better and cheaper that comes along, right? We give real things our best seven-day free trial, and if it doesn't work out, no ties, no worries. What is the best phrase you can read? you can cancel any time, right? I've heard many times, it just wasn't for us. We tried to fit in, but it just wasn't happening. It was too hard to break into the cliques that have formed. And to be honest, I hear you. That's a very real problem. Many churches are full of cliques and full of unapproachable people. Church, how are we doing with that? Right? Would visitors, think about just Hub City, you guys that are all like here, and you're like, you're members of Hub City. When visitors come in here, do they feel welcomed? How? Like, do you, just think about yourself. Do you make yourself approachable? Right? Do you make yourself approachable? Do you avoid being approached at all costs? Right? Do you know more than just your friends here? These are just questions, questions I ask myself, right? Questions we need to ask, right? They're good heart questions. But here's how I know that community should not just be the easiest fit that you can find, and only with the people you like, with the systems you like, because it does not reflect a God who was faithful to an unfaithful people, right? The Bible is many things, but one thing that should never go unnoticed is how God stays faithful to his people, even when they abandon him, when they give themselves to other gods, when they deny ever knowing him, he stayed. Now it's God. We're not God, <laughs> Right? I'm not saying we literally have to die here at Second and Lions in this Hub City building, right? There's already enough stench in here. But no, the seriousness of what you are calling your community, specifically the fellowship of the Lord, this koinonia, the biblical charge is to be committed to see it thrive and grow. Now, quick caveat, I do believe that there are some primary issues that could make or break your commitment to a particular congregation. For example, if you don't like the coffee here, not a great reason to leave. But if the pastor has not mentioned Jesus or read a Bible passage in four weeks, huge red flag, right? There are primary issues the church community inherently has to be about, and we'll get to some of those today, but we have to separate these from just preference 
issues and wrestle with that tension and prayer and guidance, okay? So let's move on. Here's the next primary issue that must be present in community. Ephesians 2, 20-21. Built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together, okay? That sentence sounded weird because it wasn't finished, okay? Now remember, this, sorry, as I'm reading it, I'm like, that sounds so weird. Um, now remember, it's God's word, praise the Lord, that this is written to outsiders, okay, Gentiles who have found faith in Jesus. So when they hear prophets, they're not thinking Old Testament like, like maybe we would. We hear prophet and you think, oh, cool, Elijah, and, you know. So they're not thinking that, but they don't have the rich history of all the prophets' writings. Now what God has done in establishing his church with Christ as the headstone or cornerstone is he's raising up a new way now for those closest of him, those eyewitness accounts of who he was and who, what his teaching was to establish his church. So when we read this, we might think that, but actually in this passage, the apostles and prophets are not the ones of old, but are the ones Jesus has raised up and are now leading the new movement of the church. Jesus, of course, as the cornerstone, See, in a building, the cornerstone or capstone covered a right angle kind of joining the two walls here, right? This was so foundational, and, and often it was so big and important what the cornerstone was that if there was like a, a really famous person or a royal person that was building this or funding it, their name would be inscribed, or inscribed on the capstone, which is pretty cool. So St. Jesus is this thing, and it holds everything together. Jesus is what everything is joined together in. Without Jesus, there's no structure, right? Then upon that is the laden, the foundation of those laying out the way of what Jesus taught and what it looks like. You guys ready to get nerdy again? I was waiting for applause. I just, I want to get nerdy. Okay. All right. So what does the foundational Jesus way look like? And I know this is why you came today, because we're going to talk about first century Jewish education system. Come on, let's go. It's exciting. Okay. Now, I honestly think this will help us grasp it a little bit bigger. Okay, so first century Jewish education system, kind of like our school system today, there, there's a couple layers of school, levels of school, okay? So the first one was primary school, which is called Bet Sefer, okay? Literally translated house of the book, okay? This is where kids would go, and they'd learn the basics, like reading, writing, math, this kind of thing. But what they would do in the Jewish community is they would by heart, know the first five books of the Bible, the Torah, okay? Pretty incredible, right? It was a little bit convicting reading that, like, what do I know, right? Here then, after this, after primary school or kind of elementary school-ish, here then most kids then would either move on, and if you were a young lady, you would get married, if you were a young boy in the time, you would go into the family trade. You would apprentice under your father or grandfather, and you would go into that trade. But the best of the best, the brightest from elementary school, right, from primary school, would move on to the next level, which is Bet Talmud, okay? This is called House of Learning. 
This is where these kids would learn more about the prophets and the Hebrew scriptures, right? AKA the Old Testament. This, by the way, was done, this is pretty cool, was done in either like private school in a home or mainly actually in the synagogue. The synagogue often had a little part of the school that was right off of it, which is so cool. This is a total tangent, doesn't mean anything. But Luke chapter 2 tells us of Jesus going to the temple. He's 12 years old, okay? He's 12 years old, and his parents, do you remember the story? He, they leave and they forget him. You remember this? It's an amazing story. It's just terrifying as a parent. But they leave him for three days. They don't know where Jesus is. How can you leave Jesus? How, you know? And then it says, Luke 2, 46, after three days, they found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. So when you take that like Jewish boy, 12 years old, the, the leaders and the rabbis were like amazed by him. It's incredible. So Jesus was a genius, okay? Doesn't, doesn't mean anything. Now only the best of the best of that, of the second level, the, the, the cream of the crop, just the best, they would then try to become a Talmudim. Okay, a Talmudim. Think like Jedi apprentice if you're there, okay? Just this is it, right? Or a Talmud. The Talmudim is a, the plural, a Talmud, right? So they would approach their rabbi. These are like, this is the best students. They would approach their rabbi, and they would ask to follow in their footsteps, to one day be their own rabbi, to be one, right? And the rabbi would put them through some incredible tests and interrogations. They would talk, you know, they, they would go through all their studies and what he has learned. And if they were the best of even that, some students dropped out of that, the best of that, the rabbi would say something like, now come and follow me. You have what it takes. Now I want you to learn what it's all about. See, rabbis were leaders and teachers in their community. If these young boys did not have what it took, then they were dropouts and they lived in the family trade. Now, in the gospel narratives, we, we, early on, we see Jesus finding his first disciples of Peter and his brother Andrew. Okay? They were older boys and fishermen by trade. So there's an assumption here that they only made it a little bit into school, maybe even level one, and now they're in the family trade. Okay, so let's read this. Matthew 4, 18. While walking by the Sea of Galilee, he, Jesus, saw two brothers, Simon, who was called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Now, often, this gets turned into a cute little saying, like, oh, that's great. You have fish for friends, right? Let's find some real people with feelings. Like, it kind of gets put into that, right? But fishers of men was actually a Hebrew idiom for teaching or a teacher. A great teacher was a fisher of men, right? Someone that could capture attention and draw the people in. So he's saying, you're following the way of a fisherman, but I want to give you a new way of life under my teaching. This is a come follow me moment where they were rejected before they now had a place with Jesus. So no wonder Matthew 4.20, the next verse, says immediately they left their nets and followed him. Immediately. This is what they've been wanting to hear. They were dropouts. They were not good enough to go through the system, but Jesus sees them. He says, come and follow me. Now keep that in mind. They were deemed unqualified to be leaders in their community, but then Jesus, who defines qualification, not only through his brilliance, but also his sinless life, calls them to the path of leadership in their community. Now, keep that in mind. These are Jesus's Talmudim, okay? Jesus resurrects, fast forward in the story, appears to his disciples, then he ascends, 
A few days later, we're getting into Acts now, the Holy Spirit comes like fire, rests on his followers, right? The mighty hand of God moves. Peter preaches, this is all in Acts 2. 3,000 people come to the faith. They heard a new teaching, a new way, and they believed. Similar to the people of Ephesus that Paul is writing to, saying, now what do we do? What do we do now? We have over 3,000 people now that believe in this thing. What do we do? What is the response of that community of believers? And this is famous. You guys have heard it. Acts 2, 42. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. What do they do? They picked up where Jesus picked them up, carrying it forward by the Holy Spirit, learning how to be fishers of men. They're under the fishers of men teaching. They're learning how to be, teach the way of Jesus. The authority and the qualification is not now on these apostles and how cool they are. It still is from Jesus. This is what the apostles' teaching is, the stuff that Jesus taught them directly. Now listen, the same is true or should be true for our church communities today. We are to build on nothing less than Jesus as a cornerstone with the foundation of the apostles' teachings that we have written down in our scriptures, which is incredible. We have said this many times before, but at Hub City, like we like to remind ourselves all the time that Jesus is our lead pastor. Jesus is the lead shepherd, the good shepherd. There's nothing that makes us especially cool or qualified as a community of faith outside of Jesus and his grace that qualifies us to walk in faith together. And it's not just in content, right? Fellowship, the apostles' teaching, but it's also fellowship and breaking of bread, their relationship words and prayer and the Spirit. These are all what makes up community. And if we keep reading in Acts 2.42, we'll see how the community thrives. It's not just a club, but like a family that's in a community. Acts 2.44, and all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. One, two chapters later, Acts 4.32. Now the full, as the church was growing, now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. And no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own. But they had everything in common. Like that is the epitome of what a gospel-centered community looks like. But as we saw with Jesus calling the fishermen, what qualifies us to, be, to, to live and be leaders in our community? It's still Jesus. It's still on his authority, his qualification. And I really think it is only by the true power of the Holy Spirit's work in us, that restorative work in us, that we would actually see nothing as our own. Because that's tough. When you read that, does that just sound tough? To see nothing you have as your own. Everything is to be given for the common good. That's crazy. Okay, so wow. So if we believe in that, that we have this emboldened community that's ready for the way of Jesus. Now, what does this community do? Which brings us back to our main passage today. Remember, Paul is writing to all the Gentiles in the church of Ephesus that this community, being of one household, built on the apostles' teaching, and Christ Jesus as holding everything together, Ephesians 2, 21, grows into a holy temple of the Lord. Notice the language here. They don't build it, right? But that has already been foundationally built on the apostles and the prophets. Christ is holding everything together as the cornerstone, and this causes growth in a holy temple. Community is grown. Community is family. Community is grown. 
Community is not a one and done, but an ongoing living thing. The word for temple here is not a building term, but a specific inner shrine of the building. The temple of the building is its heart. The very core of who you are is growing into this holy temple of the Lord. It's incredible. Now, to go back to the church community, as we've come to understand it, more like a family than a club, built on Jesus and his teachings, and it's a growing work in progress. Instead of this now subscription community building you up, you are the one building up the community, but also that means you're the one taking the hits for the community like you would a leader in your family. It's always good to go to Jesus' as example. Jesus bore the full weight of our sin. But before he did that, he bore the full weight of being scandalized, humiliated, hated, betrayed. You could fill in the blank, right? The name of Jesus, who fully represented God, was insanely dirtied and dragged through the mud. Anyone associated with Jesus would have had a hard time not canceling him in his life, in these moments when he is just being scandalized and brutalized. The religious leaders did, right? They saw him eating with sinners and tax collectors. They saw prostitutes enter into his household, wash his feet. They were scandalized by the actions of this carpenter from Nazareth, they canceled him to the point of killing him. His own followers did, right? The night he was betrayed, his closest friends left him. When he was being beaten and whipped, his supposed most faithful follower in Peter said, I do not know the man in Matthew 26. But Jesus took it for his community. Jesus took it for the outcast, the alone, the heavy burdened, the hated, the scorned, the mistreated. Jesus sullied his name so that when he rose again in glory, anyone who knew what it was like to be dragged through the dirt could now have a family, a home, and an inheritance in the heavenly realms. Anyone who believes could now be with God for eternity as a loved son and daughter. That's incredible. And I'm so excited for our series after Easter, like Randall talked about in 1 John, but this is it. 1 John 3.16, not John 3.16, 1 John 3.16 By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. What would a community look like? Seeing the example of Jesus, if everyone laid down their life for one another, regardless of theology, of social status, of political leaning, of Netflix show preferences, whether they go to margin or just the other places, right? What would your family, this church, our city look like? Because here's a hot take. You don't have to agree with someone to show them love. Okay? You don't have to agree with someone to show them love. In fact, sometimes love is more genuine when it's harder. Like, this is super tough for me. I love harmony. Love harmony. If someone doesn't like what I say or I have a hard time with what someone else is saying, it's really tough for me to move on peacefully unless we find this harmony and it's okay to be in that tension. It's okay for me to say I don't agree, but I'm still going to love you because that's what Jesus did. Jesus believed that the body of the Lord, the church, was to be one, right? That our individual differences were to make us unique and vast and strong, not to divide us. His prayer in John 17 says this, Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. Paul later affirms this in his own writing, speaking to the differences of the people that came to this faith and now they're not and they don't know how to be in community. He says this, Colossians 3, he says, Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. 
To the church in Galatia, 3.28, he says, There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. So cool. All those differences, but Christ unites them as one. This oneness is leading us to where God has always wanted his people with him. Over and over again, we read this line through the scriptures, and I will be their God, and they will be my people. We see this as kind of the chief end goal, right? That in Revelation 21, the new heavens and the new earth are coming down. This is what John saw. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. Back to our Ephesians passage. How does Paul conclude this, right? You're no longer strangers. You're in one household. You're built on the apostles' teaching, the the foundational cornerstone being Christ Jesus himself. It's this thing that is living and growing. And what does he say in the end? Ephesians 2.22, because in him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Is that not the chief goal? Is that not the chief end? The ancient thinking was that God's resting place was on this Mount Zion or within this temple, but Jesus blew all that away, and by the Spirit, God's resting place is now with his collected people. The dwelling place for God is being built by the Spirit's work in and through us. That's nuts. That's crazy, right? Now, to bring all this nerdy stuff together, because as Jesus said in John 16, I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When we talk about this community, we are family, okay? There's an ecclesia, a gathering people under one head that is Jesus. According to Paul, so then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. As a community growing in our koinonia, fellowship with one another, as Paul says, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord because we are the dedicated for the Lord. We are the Kyriake, the church. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. This is kind of a theology for the the kind of community the church needs to be, okay? So let's get just real as we end. How are we doing? Right, are there things we need to work on at Hub City? Absolutely, right? Was the last two years of isolation, fear, or frustration hard for community? (laughs) Yeah, like ridiculously so, right? If you feel bad because you're discouraged that it feels like it's tough to plug in right now, it's okay. That's just totally normal, right? Like, frankly, I think everyone is terrible at doing community right now because we don't know even what people's faces even look like. But we are dedicated to the Lord, and we are here to have fellowship, to love on one another. And this is the time, if you call yourself a Christian, you call yourself a follower of Jesus to not slowly back away from this whole church thing, but it is a time to press into the family of God's household where you are at. And I get it. It's scary. People are weird. (laughs) It's hard to envision how your life fits into other people's lives, but this is what God designed for us. 
something built on his teachings and self-sacrificial love that grows into this beautiful temple of the Lord. I mean, look what he did with the dropout disciples, right? And now we're basing our scriptures, our truth is based on this, right? This is the kind of stuff, this is what changes people, changes families, neighborhoods, changes cities, and changes culture. It's messy, you'll be offended sometimes, just like a family, it'll be hard work, but if God is as passionate about the church, we should be too. Now next week, we're going to be getting into the next three, I'll just tell you, we're going to begin into, now this family here that we kind of walk through, it's framing it up in community, this family, how do we worship together, right, how does that shape us, how does something as big as confession shape us, so in two weeks, come here and you'll just spill all your darkest secrets, no, I'm just kidding, right, we're going to talk about confession, right, the practice of confession, what that does and shapes us, and then we'll end with the practice of celebration, what does celebration look like in a community, but this reality of living in a community where no one sees their stuff as their own, their life as their own, but rather self-sacrificing for the good of one another. How this leads us, as we'll see next week, to worship a God who provides everything we need and who alone qualifies out of his grace and his grace alone. And I want to end, as Paul says it best in Ephesians 2.8, for it is by grace you have been saved through faith. That is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. And let's respond to that. Respond to this beautiful gift that God has given us. You know how we do it here. We pray, we sing loud, right? We give of our treasures. We, we see nothing as our own, and we give for the common good of the community. And of course, we want to receive and remember what Jesus did on the cross. With his body broken for us, his blood spilt for us, saying, while you were still sinners, I'm dying for you to give you now life. And this life is the lifeblood, the cornerstone of this community. Let me pray. Let's respond to that good God.